Welcome back to the Own Your Potential podcast, where you'll hear stories from leaders across the globe about how they've taken control of their career growth and lessons on how you can too. I'm Peter Sherba. Today, I'm extremely excited to be sitting down with Soon Haggerty, who's the co-founder and president of Boundless Futures Foundation, as well as the senior vice president of brand strategy at Haggerty. Soon, welcome to the podcast. Very excited to have you on. I've been looking forward to this conversation. You have a really exciting career journey, and there's a ton of questions that obviously I want to ask, but you also have an incredible personal journey, especially one that started in a really amazing way with how you and your family made it to America. Maybe you could start there and then take us through your personal and career journey leading up to today. Oh my gosh. Well, first of all, thank you for having me, Peter. Of course. It's so exciting to be able to talk to you today. Um, you know, it's interesting. As, as I really grew up, um, you know, when you grow up as a kid, you want to be like everybody else, right? You don't want to show what your differences are. And sure. as I became an adult, I realized like my entire kind of perspective on life and background really comes from being an immigrant from Vietnam. I was one of the boat people in the 70s after wow. the fall of the Vietnam uh, war, uh, my dad fought for the American side. And so we um, had to enter what they would call, quote, unquote, an edu- re-education camp, which wow. that means there's no education happening in those camps. And so we decided to emigrate to the United States as Vietnamese refugees, uh, the boat people in the 70s, if, if, you were, if you recall. So I feel like that experience, even though I was very young, I was five, it didn't hit me till I was older what an impact it made in my life, right? It really taught me about resilience. It taught me about really looking towards the future and making something out of nothing. And so, you know, I'm a serial entrepreneur. I've started three businesses and I don't know if I can do anything else, right? I love building, I love creating, but just the idea of just, you know, like life isn't about finding yourself. It's about creating yourself. That's that. So that's kind of my background and everything that I do. But it took me years to recognize that probably till probably not until I started my first business. I said, wow, like what would make me do this crazy thing to start your first PR agency? Yeah. It was it's kind of my background. No therapy, just a lot of learnings to figure this out. <laughs> So, I mean, immediately, some of this resonates with me, not because I had the immigrant story. I was born in Canada, but my parents looked to escape communist communism in Poland. And so, you know, in the mid to late 80s, they were in a refugee camp in Italy for a number of years um, before they finally got visas and landed in Canada. 89. I came out, came by, came into the world, I guess, not long after that. But I can appreciate how shaping the experience can be because their struggle and their sacrifice to get here and build our family up from nothing in in Canada, that very much has shaped my perspective. I can only imagine what your experience, one, having lived it and it being as extreme as it was, kind of changed that. And I'm trying to parallel that, like coming over to the US, for example, immigrating uh, in, in the context that you did, and then becoming a serial entrepreneur way many years down the line, but this idea of like building something from nothing, right? Is that just a reflection of the fact that when you came over to the US with your family, that was something that you all had to do as a unit to kind of build up from there? Yeah. I mean, so we um, emigrated from uh, Saigon, Vietnam with 300 bucks in our pocket and six and a half kids in tow. So we stayed at a refugee camp in Indonesia. And so we came um, sponsored by my uncle, which is like, I'm so grateful. He spent four and a half years spending, uh, saving $500 a month 
to get us our paperwork. So we wow. came and said, okay, so we've got to build from not literally from nothing. So my dad drove the newspaper truck that dropped off the newspaper bundles for newspaper boys and girls, right? So it wow. can visual this. So he worked from like 12 to 5 a.m. And then we slowly came to realize, okay, we have seven kids. Like there's no way we're going to be better than we were in the United States by him toiling away at one hourly paying job. But things were very serendipitous. We realized we lived in Fresno, California, where the temperature was 100 degrees, similar to Vietnam, very hot. Right. And so my parents would grow uh, kind of Asian fruits and vegetables in their backyard because they didn't have access to that. And then they started selling, literally selling it door to door. Wow. And realizing it like, okay, there's interest here. There's an Asian population here. We'd sell it at farmer's markets. And then they said, okay, well, three hours away in San Jose, there's a lot of Asian communities. So we went, I remember this distinctly on Wednesdays, we would pack up our baby blue. I like to say Tiffany blue. Van, <laughs> and we would literally sell Asian fruits and vegetables in the back of our van to grocery stores. Wow. And so we real and then so every year we built the business and we just kind of developed in a bigger strategy and then we bought land to start growing our own fruits and vegetables and then we bought a warehouse in San Jose where now we still own it 45 years later it's called Asiana Produce and my brother and sister run it so it's this idea of like there's two paths you can toil away forever and just say okay like what kind of life are we going to lead? Like the yeah. whole reason they gave up their entire family, both of their families is to create a better life for us. And they knew this hourly worker type of life wasn't going to do it. So they risked everything and just like very serendipitous said, this is, this is the risk we're going to take. And it's paid off really well. It's just this entrepreneur blood has been like beaten into me. I yeah. think it's a very young age. Well, I think um, what's really amazing about that is, is, and I think for many people, many people have ideas. Many people have a vision for the type of life they may want to live. But figuring out a plan to start building towards that, it, you know, the breadth of what it could be could be almost paralyzing and overwhelming, right? Where do I even start? To, you know, if let's say I have something material or a way of living that I want to achieve, but I have no idea or path of how to get there. And the people who raised me didn't have that life or that perspective, so they can't set me on the right way, let's say. Like, Lots of people have that perspective. I think what's what's amazing here, right, is is the resourcefulness to understand and see the opportunity around you and then pursue it. But I'm curious, at what point was there, for example, like, or if there was a, like a goal put in place that you then start to build to and you realize there's something here that's bigger than us just making the best of kind of what we have in front of us, we can actually build this into something greater. Because I feel like experiencing that at a young age in a very like concrete way could really set you up for that, you know, entrepreneurial bug down the line, as you kind of said. Yeah. I mean, I get this question a lot where it's like, okay, get, you know, advice for a new entrepreneur or starting your own business, especially around uh, the Balanced Futures Foundation. It's really like, to me, the heart of business is what problem are you trying to solve? Right. So right. it's not like I want to be wealthy or I want to be famous or I want to make this huge impact. Those are great end results. But like right. really the genesis is what problem am I trying to solve? So when it goes back to my parents is, look, there's an Asian community here. They need Asian fruits and vegetables. Grocery right. stores need an Asian fruit and vegetable section. So my the problem I'm trying to solve is access. Right. And we have 
the talent to create that access. So I kind of think that same way of like when I started my first agency, my PR agency, it's like, listen, there's a bunch of these niche luxury brands who need like not a big agency, but someone who can be their internal PR person for not, you know, not as expensive and easier access to me or my, or, or my team. So it's, it's always what problem are you trying to solve? And then you'll figure out the rest. It's not like I need a 20 year trajectory of being an entrepreneur. It's like, there's a problem in the world. I think I have the talent to, to serve that problem. And then you kind of figure out what are the next three or four steps. I love that because that is a much more simplified approach, right? Like it's, it's very much the like, keep it simple, stupid approach, right? But like it, it but it, it makes total sense is if you, if you identify the problem successfully, right? And then solve for it effectively, then, then the rest will kind of come inherently with, you know, building towards activating the solution effectively. But that, I mean, makes total sense. Well, so, I mean, from, from there, right, you obviously had, started the communications agency, then that was something that grew into something obviously much larger. So, so obviously the problem you identified was uh, a large enough one there where there was enormous opportunity. So talk a little bit about like the growth of that business and how you scaled it and, and, and then how it, I guess, parlayed itself into your career at Haggerty. Yeah. So, I mean, I started uh, an agency when I was 30 that really focused on the high-end automotive luxury space. And then I merged with another firm and created a, a secondary a company called Centigrade, which is more of events, marketing, PR, broader scale. We did a ton of work for the Volkswagen Group. So that was probably our pr- primary client. I learned a lot working for global brands. And then you know, I met my husband. I lived in LA and he was in the automotive world. And I'd show up like he plucks me, plucked me out of the street. LA and put me into snow in Michigan. And so, <laughs> you know, after you know, running my agencies for 10 years, I said, listen, this is a really special company. Haggerty is a really special company. Yeah. It's a passion brand. And I love creating and I love transforming. And I knew that, um, you know, he needed my help and I was interested in it. So I uh, divested my shares in my previous agencies and worked full time at Haggerty. And it's been the most incredible joy ride, which, you know, pardon my pun for the car world, but just yeah. this like company, very similar to my background, right? Entrepreneur company. My parents started with absolutely nothing and built this really cool business. And then his parents started in the basement of his garage, Frank and Louise Haggerty, and just selling policy by policy. And yeah. it's really what the genesis of this idea that people take special care of their toys. Yeah. Whether it's plastic boats where Haggerty started or their cars, they take care of their toys. They take care of things that they love. So it's been a pleasure to be able to really take Haggerty from an insurance company, which nobody likes to talk about insurance, right? But people like to talk about cars. And so we spend a lot of time creating this brand where when we meet somebody who's a car enthusiast, we don't say like, what type of policy would you like to have? The first thing we say is like, tell me about your car. Like, yeah. how did you get it? You know, where, like, what's your passion? What, you know, anytime I meet a collector, they'll say, I'm insured, I'm with you guys, which I find fascinating. That's different than I'm insured with you guys. Right. Like, I'm with you guys. Well, well, what kind of car do you have? That I always, and then I get a 20 minute dissertation about their car before they even ask me any question about insurance. Yeah. When we knew we created a pretty cool brand. Absolutely. And it, it, I think that in itself, right, to go from something that started out as, Selling insurance policies, policy by policy, which I mean, and I mean this as no offense, there are more interesting things than insurance policies out there, right? I totally agree with you. I totally agree. But for that to evolve, and for anyone who's listening who's not aware, Haggerty is now 
the pillar of automotive culture and enthusiasm. And I think anyone who knows the space, you know, you have, for example, Top Gear as this like uh, show that really drove and cr- created automotive culture for folks through the 1990s into the 2000s, right? And then it exploded into creating all of these content creators and stuff like that around automotive uh, content o- over the two, 2000s, or sorry, the 2010s and, and into the 2020s. But Haggerty has, you know, through its, I guess, beginnings in in collector and classic cars, which is, in, you know, starting at the roots with enthusiasts, right? People who are emotion and passion driven, and then expanding that to creating a brand and organization that across so many different channels and, and different ways is creating more and like perpetuating this passion a, 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 today is unbelievable. I don't know that Haggerty, that anybody is doing like car content better than Haggerty right now, or car enthusiasm or car experience is better than Haggerty right now. And that is a huge leap to make from selling policies, even though it was to collectors. And so that takes like really intentional decisioning and strategy, especially in marketing communications, which you were part of. Talk a little bit about when you guys saw the opportunity to pivot outside of your core business and expand into like, you know, the culture shifting organization that you are today. Yeah, you know, it's 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 you know, after we launched the company, by the way, we're gonna hit 40 years next year, which is gonna be incredible. Congrats. Um, it's it's really about like going to these car shows, right? We knew we were never as an insurance company, quote unquote, we were never gonna be like the large insurance carriers who spend, you know, millions, not billions a year on advertising and marketing. We knew we weren't gonna be able to compete on that level of scale or mass audience. We knew we can compete in the hearts and minds of collectors, right? Like what do they care about? And so we started going to these shows and we started talking to people and we realized like we have something special. And we would spend the time at these car shows almost like a mini focus group. Like, like Peter, what do you care about? Well, you know, I I love my car, but I don't have a place to store it. So, you know, we started thinking about like, what is that storage solution? It goes back to the, what we talked about, which is what problem are you trying to solve? Okay. I, I really love cars, but like, I only get my monthly magazine once a month. And so like, was, okay, what if we created YouTube? What if we created right. YouTube channels? What if we created <clears throat> online content? So spending that time to tap into this concept, like we can't, we didn't invent the automobile. We don't create cars, but we create the passion around cars. How do we yeah. tap? into that, that was a pretty big missing space in the collector car field. In the new car space, you had like motor trend, car and driver. In the classic car space, you really didn't have people talking about their old cars, their classic cars. So we said, okay, could we be that catalyst? I think, could we be the catalyst for fun, right? And so we created this purpose, which is our purpose is to save driving and fuel car culture. It, this is really important to us. And we know that um, a classic car is not about getting to A to B. It's yeah. really about something special that you love. And it's how, it's kind of how you connect with other people. Absolutely. And I think even the, you know, and, and I may be oversimplifying it, but one of the things that's special about insuring a vehicle with Haggerty is that, you know, and, and anyone who's an enthusiast and say you have a car that's special to you and you, you could be a 20 something year old that bought like a car, sport their first sports car. And you know that if something happens to that car, a basic insurance policy is not going to get you that car back. Right. Mm-hmm. It, whereas like, so this idea that you can declare a value, align on a value and Haggerty will insure it against that. And that value is what it is worth to you. Right. Whether you've modified that vehicle or whatever the case is like that in itself 
you talk about like a generation of people now who maybe are not, you know, collectors of 50, 60 cars, but have one that means so much to them. But that is building them into that much more of a passionate enthusiast down the line and someone who, you know, is going to be a passionate um, advocate for Haggerty. And I think that's like a powerful thing that a lot of brands aspire to, right? Um, to achieve, regardless of industry and, and kind of vertical. And I guess at, at what point did you guys realize that you had unlocked that, that like your customers were going to become like your biggest advocates? Well, you know, I mentioned it earlier. It's like, you know, we see people, it went from very early years to like, I insure my one car with you to I'm with you guys or I love you guys. And sometimes I'll say like, okay, so what car do you have? Like, oh, oh I don't have a car. I just love you guys. You know, <laughs> we thought, okay, wow, this is working. And that's that content piece that you were talking about. Like, you know, we have... Lots of really great car enthusiasts who who put on the sh- these like uh, online car t- content shows for us, and so just it's just like in the field conversation. There's no scientific way to say, okay, did I unlock something? Right? Yeah. You can have tons of impressions and measurements, but it's what people say to you when 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 no one's really paying attention when they say, I- "I'm with you guys." There was this one funny moment though. We give away these like free like inexpensive canvas tote bags at car shows where we put in like magazines and stuff. We started getting like, this was about 10 years ago, people sending in photos of like, they'll collect like 50 to 60 bags. And one guy made a car cover with oh, that's cool. Ads. Yeah. I did this whole, like, this is when, you know, you've made it. Like people are creating, like, I'm like, Hey, that guy stole like 60 bags from us. I love this guy. Right. Yeah. But one guy came back as a joke and created a bikini out of old Haggerty bags. That's amazing. So it's like, it's one of those where it's like, okay, we're resonating. And it was, and it's not about insurance. It's about car love. It's about content. It's like, do we recognize the things that they want and need? And so when we get kind of photos like that, that makes me kind of go, okay, we're tapping into something pretty cool. Yeah, I totally agree. And I just, I mean, to summarize the point, like I think there are brands who build products like a Porsche or any other automotive brand or luxury brand or fashion or CPG, whatever the case is, they aspire to get this, to build this type of connection and and love with their consumers. But then when you think about like service providers or anything like that, I, I mean, I struggle to think of another brand that has built that kind of relationship, which I think is very cool. Um, that, you know, that being said, right, I, your serial entrepreneurialism on display again, though, you did start a company while in your role at Haggerty called The Good Bull. Maybe talk a little bit about what triggered that. And, you know, obviously, I think you mentioned this idea of having a purpose or a goal, right, and building towards that, maybe what the purpose was around that organization. I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. Well, okay. So speaking of necessity and need, when I, um, when I left LA, I moved to Traverse City, but no Asian restaurants, no huge, very white Northern Michigan. So I got here and I was like, Oh oh my God, I need a bowl of pho. I I need some Vietnamese food. And so it was kind of like a pipe dream. And then, you know, I, I said, okay, well, okay. I've been here for a few years. Like what if I thought about considering like creating a Vietnamese restaurant here? And so I created this business plan, just, just on paper, like, what could I do? And then I met with my attorney and he said, do you have a, a chef? And I was like, uh, no, I don't, I don't have a chef. So he introduced me to a friend of his he went to high school with. And as we started talking, what hit me was we have the same story. Like my immigrant background, his family immigrated from Vietnam. They went to Paris. We went to California. And then I said, what if we created this restaurant 
And we donated a dollar per bowl to charity as a way to thank the U.S. for taking us in as immigrants. Oh, that's cool. So it's like, it's like I don't like to use the term giving back. I think it's more like contributing to society. Right. right? So I, so we created, and that's why it's called Good Bowl. We donate a dollar per bowl to charity. Every time you come in and order one of our signature bowls, we'll ask you, Peter, where do you want your dollar to go to today? And we'll give you three options, local, national, and global. I'm adamant about all three. I, I think sometimes people get so local that they, they don't pick their head up and say, what's happening in the world? Like, yeah. how can I make a difference in the world? Right. And so, um, so really the mission around that is just to, to figure out, is there a platform to bring awareness to other charities that are doing great work alongside giving away a um, portion of our proceeds to these charities? And so we turned five this year and we've donated about 150 grand to charity. So about 30 grand a year for a small little restaurant, which isn't, you know, it's, it's a bit of a lift to be able to do that, but we're super excited about it. And I have to tell you the, the biggest group that really loves that is our employees. They help us pick the charities. And so it's a, it's a cool morale boost too. That's very cool. And I think what, what I love about that is if we just circle back to your approach of identifying a problem, right. And solving it, it even when you mentioned like your family's business around uh, growing Asian vegetables and bringing them, them to a market, right. And being able to give it to Asian communities who didn't have access to it. Here you are in an, in a community that doesn't have access to Vietnamese food and you, you are in that community. You don't have access to it. So it's like, let's once again, solve for the access problem. But then similarly to what you've done with Haggerty, is okay, so you're solving a problem, but then you're building a story and an experience around it that will create that love and connection to the brand that is, I think, really meaningful. And here you're actually contributing back to society and connecting to the immigrant story that so many people have, regardless of where they've immigrated from, they yeah. share that, right? So that in itself is is like a very cool reflection of your entrepreneurial approach kind of on a smaller scale, which is very cool. So. I mean, that kind of bridges us uh, now to the super exciting thing that that you're doing today, which is the Boundless Futures Foundation. Maybe talk a little bit about just to set the context of what that is. And then I'd love to, to talk a little bit more about that. Yeah. Well, thank you for asking about that. It's something I'm super proud of. And my husband and I, Mikhail, are both really... Um, excited about it. So, you know, when we went public, one of the things we thought about is, okay, so we have some resources that we want to dedicate somewhere. And we met with our three girls. We have three girls. And um, we all sat around the table and said, we want to build a foundation. We want to figure out how we can support others. And so, you know, Mikhail's entrepreneur background, his mom really helped, you know, run the business. My mom run, ran the business. And so we knew there was this like this female leadership component that was really important for our girls and for others. And so we created and we just launched it probably it'll be two months this week um, oh, wow. in September. It's called the Boundless Futures Foundation. And kind of how I think about it is like you're a woman's BFF in her entrepreneurial journey. So it's really about like three pillars of like embrace, empower and um, elevate. And so it's really about giving individuals who want to start a business to help solve a world problem, right? So very much like the good ball. And so we will uh, fund up to $25,000. They have to have a business plan. They have to show that they're, they're really thinking about their business. So that's on an individual basis. And then we also help nonprofits who help female entrepreneurs too, because we can't do this alone, right? right? We really want this network effect. And then the other pillar is this embrace pillar where 
it's it's one thing to have capital. It's another to get um, to fund to get funding, but it's another to have this network. Like when you start your own business, you wake up, you kind of literally the basics. Do I start an LLC, an Inc, an S Corp, all those things, right? So there's so many things that you're trying to figure out that this embrace pillar is this um, group of several women who've started their own businesses on speed dial. So you can call right. any, like we have somebody mm-hmm. who helps you with finance question, a marketing question, a leadership question. So it's really, it's not just about having money. It's about having resources um, on speed dial very quickly. So I'm excited about it. It's, 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 I think it's a really good time in my life where, you know, I've spent 20 years at Haggerty. I've started a couple of businesses and I said like, okay, it's time for me to really think about like, how do I take some of the things that I've learned to be able to help others? I'm not retired. Don't worry for me. <laughs> but I, I think it's time for me to broaden my sphere. No, I love that. And I think, you know, the way I'm, I'm understanding and I, how would I articulate it back is not only are you helping the kind of end user in this case, which is the entrepreneur, right? Through funding, but you're also helping through resourcing, right? So you're enabling them, but you're also enabling their enablers in terms of the yes. nonprofits, right? So it's like the entire value chain you're yeah. looking to impact, which I think is, you know, really exciting. And then in terms specifically around the embrace pillar, just circling back to kind of my a comment I made earlier around there's plenty of people who have ideas, but have like no idea where to start, right? Yeah. That in itself, right? You're helping solve that problem, putting guardrails around it, providing the guidance and the kind of the strategy that that is needed for these people to kind of realize that idea or vision, or at least get on the right track. That's really powerful because I think that is like the biggest um, hurdle that many need to overcome when deciding like, do I step away from maybe a secure job, right? That is holding down my family unit or my own, my personal life or whatever the case is, and really take a risk on going after what I think could make me very happy, right? That's usually a pretty big hurdle. So I guess I'm curious around, you know, to what extent does the relationship that Boundless Futures Foundation have with the entrepreneurs, like at, at what point in the life cycle do you guys kind of set them free and let them leave yeah. the, the, the bird's nest? Oh, I, I love that. I think, um, you know, our goal is at least within the first year of us granting them the, the award that will be right by their side. Right. And so they can book directly with any of our advisors. I think that's going to be so pivotal. I think just looking at the first applications, the majority of the support co- that they'll need is through marketing and brand. And I'm thinking to myself, well, that would be me. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I got to carve out some time to do that. But that's exciting. I, I, I think most entrepreneurs, when they come up with their idea, it's like they're passionate about their idea, but there's like they get paralyzed on how to roll it out. They get paralyzed. Who's my audience? How do I roll? How, how do I bring awareness to this? So I think that's that's really important. And 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 the biggest thing that I've learned just you know being an entrepreneur is like this idea of like questioning yourself or wondering what's next never ends. It doesn't matter if you've been in it for ten years or twenty years. Yeah. There's always some, like ninety percent of the time I wake up and say like I've done the right thing starting this business, and then the other ten percent I'm like what was I thinking and drinking at the time? You know, so so it never ends. Like having mentorship and having people around you who are really smart to give you advice doesn't end after the year, but but it's just about connecting with the right people that you trust that actually that have been through this. Like I can, you know, you can talk to your friends, but somebody who's like, who's owned their own business, who wakes up at 5am and says, what have I done? You need to talk to those people because 
they're the ones that are, are in your camp and they understand what you're going through. So that's that's why the embrace pillar is really important. I, I, I mean, that resonates with me very deeply. That's part of the reason why this podcast exists is right to give people access to stories and voices like yours, right? Telling us about what worked for them and what didn't. And so, I mean, that makes absolute sense to me. And it, it I, I agree with the sentiment of, of looking up or looking around, seeing people who are where you want to be or in the direction that you want to be going and just speaking to them. Right. And I am curious then, you know, in your time, for example, at Haggerty, I would say Haggerty was doing something across the last two decades that, you know, nobody else had really done, especially not like the services space and automotive, right. That, that would have generated the type of culture and kind of brand resonance that you guys have. So it would have been difficult to look up and find somebody who's kind of where you guys want to be or has already done it. So how did you kind of manage that along your career at Haggerty? And did you have mentors in place? Did you go out and pursue them? Were they people that were already in your network? I'm very curious to see where did you find kind of inspiration or guidance as you were steering kind of Haggerty in the direction that you ultimately ended up going? Well, yeah, I, I, I always tell my team, like, you can't create strategy in a boardroom on a PowerPoint. You right. have, that's the end result. You have to look outside your walls. That's, I mean, if you ask any member of my team, that would be on my tombstone. Look outside your walls, look outside your industry. There's tons of inspiration. Some of the brands, and they're very different brands, but like, I think what Red Bull's done for the content space is amazing. They went from like this energy drink to like racing adrenaline. So like, it's not like what product you have. It's like, what are you trying to inspire, right? Yeah. So obviously the ones that everybody loves, like Nike and Apple. But I also think Patagonia, what they've done is really amazing. They've built something beyond just apparel. They've built this movement for the environment. So I kind of look at those two and kind of say like, okay, like what can we learn from them? And how and, and what makes Haggerty special like that? And I think it's that idea of like we're tapping into car love. Like this isn't car insurance. Like nobody buys a car to get insured. They buy yeah. a car because they love it and they want to drive it. So just, I mean, two things, paying attention to like when you have those conversations, you should have this curious mind. Like what, what is it people really trying to say versus what they said? And the second piece is like, what brands do you admire? Like, I always think like, if I didn't work for Haggerty, who would I work for? Yeah. And those would be the, that's how I kind of decide what brand I should be listening oh, to. Oh, I love that. Yeah, I absolutely love that. And, and I think as you articulate those two brands, like Red Bull and Patagonia and Red Bull one, I'm deeply familiar with just because of being a fan of motorsports, but like to your point, right? You looked outside and you looked at a beverage company that channels people's uh, desire to do extreme things and feel adrenaline rush, right? And, and connects something as simple as a beverage to that entire world of extreme sports, right? And creates content around that and creates excitement around that. And now those two things are absolutely synonymous. If you think about the most the extreme people doing the most extreme things, um, Red Bull. And then to your point now, like Car Love and Haggerty are synonymous. And I think having the the perspective to look around and not just look at, to your point, like a, a Nike or an Apple, which are the obvious ones that have strong brands, right? Or a Rolex or Ferrari or whatever. But like you're looking at, at like the actual unique connection between the way that they're branding and creating a relationship with their consumers and the fact that it has almost nothing to do with their product, right? And it is more connective tissue with Haggerty. That's really um, exciting. And uh, I think the sentiment around, if I didn't work here, where would I want to work? And let's then bring that as an inspiration into to where I am. Where did, I mean, did that, was that something that was imparted on you by a mentor or is that something you've developed now over time? Because that's, actually very poignant. I've never heard that stated before that way. 
Well, I mean, I kind of view um, you only get one life, right? And it, and I, I think it's like I always like you know who you are and where you spend your time and attention. So if I see anything by Red Bull or Patagonia or Apple or Nike, like I instantly gravitate there. It's yeah. it's not something intentional. It's like what what piques my interest, right? And so I don't know if I've ever really articulated in that way, um, but it's more of like okay, my dream job would be. If it wasn't Haggerty, this. And and like, if you could go through the exercise, my dream job would be this. And this is why, you know, because they do these things. So then I kind of like kind of sidestep this like trajectory where I can bring that back to Haggerty. Why am I interested in that? So I kind of, I don't know. It's, it's just a very natural thing for me. It's kind of like cooking. It's the same thing. It's, it's like my husband's like, you should be like a 500 pound little Asian about how <laughs> You are about your food. And so I kind of took something that I'm naturally interested in and I created a business out of it. Yeah. So I, I love that. And, and I'm curious because obviously your situation with, with Haggerty was unique, right? And that it was something that you were invested in. It was became part of once, you know, once it became family, it became a family endeavor, right? And so it, it's a little bit different in that, you know, you're not necessarily assessing external opportunities as like, Hey, I'm looking to like jump ship to grow my career. Cause you're trying to grow Haggerty into what it can potentially be. But I'm one, I'm curious about your advice though, right. For folks out there who are maybe in more traditional working situations where maybe they do look outside They're they're passionate about the organization they're at and the, and the role that they're playing, but something's missing and they look outside and they, they, they kind of use this thinking process of, where would I work if I wasn't working here? And what can I bring in from there? But they're maybe not able to successfully do that or they're struggling to do so. Like, do you think, at what point do you think is it time to maybe in that case to look elsewhere and and find a a different opportunity? Do you have a perspective on that or have you ever coached anybody on that? Yeah, no, actually people, you know, I think when you've been working for a long time, especially in the corporate world, that's a pretty common question, right? And I even have those conversations with my own direct reports. Right. right? There's some that have been here working on my team for 10 years. Some have been for five years. And and I'm pretty direct in terms of like, like coaching with them of like, okay, have I hit a wall? My question is always like, have you stopped learning? If right. you stopped learning... And you're not passionate about it. I mean, I, I hate to always go back on passion. I think there's more to it than passion. It's like if you stopped learning and growing, it's time for you to move on. And it doesn't necessarily mean you're unhappy. Like if you stop learning and growing somewhere, you could probably figure out what's the next step. And like when I think about this, I always think, like, where can I learn and lead somewhere else? Right. And so that, that would be my question. If you've stopped learning, once you stop learning, I think your passion will eventually diminish. Cause I think most people are, are like, if you're successful, you're intrinsically motivated. It's not, yeah. it's not the paycheck. It's not even the title. It's like you, when you're passionate about something, you come home and you tell your wife, your husband, your dog, it is, like, this is what I did today. When you stop doing that, it's time for you to move on. Absolutely. And I think, you know, I actually had, uh, as part of this podcast, a conversation with an ex uh, NFL player. And I asked him, because I grew up playing basketball, and I asked him about, you know, now in his post playing career, how does he replicate the highs that you feel like playing a professional sport, like winning or, you know, achieving, getting better, seeing the like the impact of like the work you put in by the, you know, in a very black and white way 
performance and results on the playing field, right? How do you get that same high of those intense, like high stakes moments? How do you replicate that feeling? And because for me, for example, public speaking, giving a good presentation to a client, securing a piece of new business, regardless of what it's about, right? But those things trigger that same kind of like dopamine rush for me. When I walk out of a client presentation, I'm like, oh, that went well. I feel like I'm on a high. I almost have that, like those adrenaline shakes coming down uh, from, from the high. And I wonder, right, for yourself, have you, do you, do you feel that in, in your role? Do you kind of get those things? Because you're I, especially hearing you talk about passion over and over. And it just, whether you want to or not, the word seems to leak out. And I'm curious if that kind of connects to that, that feeling of satisfaction and achievement when you've kind of grown things, whether net with Haggerty or now with Boundless Future uh, Foundation. Yeah, I, th- I think it's actually changed in my life. I think when I started working in the professional space around 23, 24 after college, like my my high was like, creating a great presentation, landing a client, you know, all those things that were more like resume oriented, let's say like check off the list. I've done all these things. I think those things are important. I never devalue accomplishments, but I think my biggest high is having a really thoughtful conversation with somebody I work with and then getting a note later to say, my God, that really resonated what you said to me because of our conversation. I did this. I started my own business or I started uh, even if it's a new book so they can learn. It's, it's been interesting over the last couple of months. I don't say this with any ego. I say it with more of surprise. Like how many women have asked me for book recommendations? I'm like, okay, literally this, I came home this weekend. I went to go see Rod Stewart with my husband and, and some friends. And um, on my sitter for my daughter said, oh, soon I just want to talk to you. Can I get some book recommendations? And I said, oh, okay. Beach read. She goes, no, just things about life. Like, how do I, I was like, huh, I've been getting that a lot lately. Maybe it's because I've launched the foundation and they know I'm a big supporter of women and entrepreneurs and business, but like that gives me a bigger high than any resume accomplishment. The fact that like, just, just the fact that people just want your advice about something that can really have a big trajectory on their life is, it's a huge high for me. It's, it doesn't come from ego. It comes from like, huh, Okay, I, I got to start getting a book recommendation list. <laughs> but I think what's what's important to note about that is that it, it at least it sounds like you take a great deal of care and and you approach it with a great deal of intention in terms of like what you would recommend to those people, right? Um, and and I think you know with folks coming and asking for that sort of advice, like it you have to recognize the responsibility that you now have to kind of steer them in, in kind of the direction that's appropriate for them. So how do you manage, for example, you know, and this is for, this is probably valuable for anyone who's a people leader or a people manager in any industry or role, but how do you manage, for example, providing the advice that works for you versus trying to recognize the types of things that may work for the individual and, and the push and pull of that? Yeah, I mean, I think asking several questions versus checking it off the list, like, oh, here it's like, and this is another example. Like, uh, my first GM of the Good Ball, she left after about two two years to start her own business, and I was, you know, I helped her really think that through. She just sent me a text, like, so this was three years ago. Sent me a text just last week and said, "Listen, I I have a a female." Um, employee who doesn't have a ton of confidence, like how do I build her confidence? Which is a huge question, right? Yeah. <laughs> so I just kind of followed up like, well, tell me what she's like. Tell me how she thinks. Like, is she not confident because she doesn't have the skill? Is she not confident because she doesn't have like the mindset? So like probing and like 
probing and asking, like, again, it goes back to the same idea. Like, what problem are you trying to solve? Like, why do you know why she's not confident? Do you know what you want out of this conversation? I, so I think it's, it's, you know, you always want to preference it with like, what does work for you, right? Like, here's the problem I was solving when I tried, when I tried this book. And then people can decide for themselves. And that doesn't really resonate with me. But I think in general, when you try to give recommendations to solve everybody's problem, that's not why people came to you. Right. They came to you because like, hey, I like something about this person and I want their recommendation. It's their responsibility to decide if it's good for them. But I wouldn't spend a ton of time saying like, I'm going to give you 15 recommendations. I would say like, when I think about confidence, this is the book that I would choose. And, and then people can decide for themselves. So, you know, I think the more you hone in on what works for you, they can decipher after that. Do they need to edit from there or, or are they willing to t- try that book or that recommendation? I love that. And I'm, I'm curious if you have any advice for folks, because I think that especially people earlier in their careers often have a little bit of hesitation around, you know, reaching out and asking a leader or somebody in their organization or their circle to, to even make that connection and ask for that help, right? Whether it's, you know, insecurity around it or a bit of anxiety or a lack of the skills to, to build that sort of, to do that sort of networking. Do you have any advice in terms of what folks can come prepared with when they see somebody like you, for example, or any other leader, and they're like, I would love their feedback or opinion on this. I don't know if they're going to give me the time or not. Like you have um, maybe some advice on like what they can come with to be more confident going to that person to know that they're going to extract value out of that interaction. Oh, I think that's a really good question. I, I, I can tell you my first job was in PR and with PR, you're, you're, you're cold calling a lot of, of media, right? right? And I will tell you, you will be, they will hang up on you instantly if you didn't do your research. It's the same thing for human beings. Like, especially if you're in a place where somebody comes to you and says like, I see value in spending time with you because you've accomplished this. Like they're busy people. So I always do my research. Like, and I'm very specific. Peter, can I get 30 minutes of your time next week on this particular topic? Because I read an article. I saw you did an interview with this person on your podcast. Be specific because nobody wants to meet with somebody who has a generic pitch, whether it's to buy something or to buy your time. Right. So I think it's really important. Like, tell me why, like, my, former GM, like she was very specific and that resonated with me. Like, listen, she knows that I want to build women's confidence. So that was a great text to me. But if someone were to text and say, Hey, I'm like, I really think you're, you know, you're a great leader. And can I, can I pick your brain for 30 minutes? No, like you give me specifically, how can I help you solve that problem? It's just like all human beings. People want to be recognized for the things that they do, but they also want to know that you're paying attention. So do your research. And I think ask the ask, you know, the worst thing is they can say no. And that's, and, and, you know, you just kind of move on. And, and I think the best advice I got, you know, when I was a publicist in my, you know, when I was 25 was listen, go like, go as big as you can. Like, and I worked in, um, at that time I lived in LA, but I come from Fresno and it was like kind of this idea of like, It takes just as much energy to pitch a journalist of like the San Fernando Business Journal versus the New York Times. Yeah. No is the same. So go for who you believe will will really be able to help you. Don't be afraid to that because the no and the energy is the same. I love that. And and. I, I, I re- and it really deeply resonates me as somebody who tries to solicit people to come on this podcast, right? And, and I've 
had that me- mentality before of like, what's the harm, right? Let me reach out on LinkedIn. If they accept, they accept. If they don't, they don't. If they respond, they respond. If not, they, they don't, right? And I, I, I agree with that. And this idea of kind of going big because the effort is the, is the same makes makes total sense. And also the being specific um, with your pitch and your ask, I think, and being intentional with that, it makes so much sense, right? And, and whether, I love the way you phrased it, whether you're looking to to sell something or or or, or to buy their time or whatever the case is, right? I think those are really valuable takeaways. But on the topic of of kind of going big and just as kind of like a closing question with the Balanced Futures Foundation and you know your track record of 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 kind of being successful as an entrepreneur and building out um, what Haggerty is today. What does going big look like for Balanced Future Foundation, whether it's 5, 10, 15 years from now? Like, what is the vision for that on, from a scale perspective? Like, what are you really kind of hoping to achieve? Well, I mean, uh, I when we talked about it earlier, it's like putting the goal and cementing it. Our, our foundation is the Boundless Futures Foundation. So no pressure, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, my goal is like, you know, and we're still working on the metrics. It's like how many women can I launch businesses so they can launch other people's businesses so they can launch, uh, you know, solving problems. So the metrics is really about like, you know, could I imagine in a few years where our metrics is almost like a country's um, gross national product, right? Like, could I say Boundless Futures as a country has launched, you know, a hundred entrepreneurs employing, you know, 10,000 people creating this much revenue. So I kind of think it was like, Boundless Futures is like this nation and how successful is our, is our products and, you know, exports and all those things. So, you know, we're still, I mean, we're two months old, so we, we have a lot of learning to do. Yeah. That would be my ultimate vision is like, could it be viewed as like this nation that contributes to society? I love that. I, I love the, the the articulation of that. And as you know, a father of two little girls, I'm excited that things, the organizations like this, are being stood up to kind of lay the foundation and the and the path for them to be able to achieve whatever it is that they want to achieve. Um, so, so I just find that incredibly exciting to hear. And it, it has been an absolute pleasure hearing about your journey and kind of the stuff that you're doing now and looking to do in the future to impact people and, and support them with their entrepreneurial vision. So it's been a huge pleasure soon. I appreciate your time and I look forward to chatting again in the future. Um, and this has been so much fun. Thank you so much for all the work that you're doing to help others too. I'm excited to continue to listen to all of your shows. Thank you, Peter. 